This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Alexandra Faust is a staff research scientist and reinforcement learning research team co-founder at Google Brain Research. Thanks uh, for taking the time to do this, Dr. Faust. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Awesome. So uh, how do you describe uh, your research focus? So in the broad sense, I'm interested in making reinforcement learning uh, scalable and suitable for complex decision-making in real interactive world and learning something about cognitive science in the process. Uh, Specifically, nowadays, I'm interested in two main tracks or things. First, figuring out how to continuously learn new and more complex tasks, fundamentally more complex things, not only improving the competency of a single set of tasks. And the second is treating reinforcement learning training as a decision-making process itself and, and applying learning and automation methods with the population of agents to get better type of training. So I see that your PhD dissertation involved uh, RL. Can you tell us briefly about that? Sure. <laughs> that was fun time. Uh, my dissertation was about preference balancing uh, task, learning preference balancing task. And these tasks are tasks with the opposite preferences, uh, but without known hard or soft constraints. So, for example, imagine setting loss on a table. We all we want to get this task done as soon as possible, but not really break the glass in the process. All of us can do it, yet... None of us know what is exactly force that's needed that's going to break the glass, right? So the idea here is to find, uh, to learn the preferences, preference balancing task with reinforcement learning. So we did this first in the context of the quadrotor with a suspended load and basically asking to deliver the load or, or, or the, the package with a minimum swinging. So this is a drone delivery task. Um, I believe that this was the first application of reinforcement learning to UAVs. And from there, we then asked under what conditions the policy that we learn will drive the quadrotor to the goal. And we derived the verifiable conditions under which that was the case. Uh, It turned out that actually for any control of fine system, which is a fancy way of saying systems controlled by a force that have enough power to overcome wind and so on. And if the value function ends up being positive definite, we are guaranteed to reach the destination. And that even goes in the presence of disturbances like wind and so on. And even worked in them for the multi-agent systems. And we want to show that these techniques hold for the classic computer science, such as resilient sorting when we need to sort an array and the computer is unreliable and gives us wrong answers uh, up to 50% of the time. So the key here for these methods was connecting the state value functions in reinforcement learning with the control Lyapunov functions from the control theory and using the tools from the stability theory and the control theory to analyze the system behavior. So let's jump into the first paper uh, that is learning navigation behaviors end to end with auto RL. And that was uh, Chang et al. and with you yourself as a co-author. Mm-hmm. So what was the uh, gist of, of this auto RL paper? So it was basically similar idea uh, 
and in a sense extension of my PhD work. The assumption in this case was that we didn't know relationship between the preferences, uh, that the PhD work didn't know the relationship between the preferences, but we had good intuition about what the important preferences might be. In this case, we're going to move this one step further and observe that in many reinforcement learning tasks, they are difficult to solve because the task true objective is either task was completed or it was not completed, and that's very difficult for agent to learn. This is what we kind of refer to in the literature as parse reward problem. So we ended up, as kind of engineers and kind of making this method work, we end up spending endless time on engineering this proxy and trister keywords and so on. So we observed that we actually have a good intuition about what might be important features that would give us the reward on how well the agent is doing with respect to completion of the tasks. For example, how far from the goal it is, the orientation, the speed, and so on. But just like before, we didn't know how they relate to each other. So kind of having these weights that kind of put them together in a function. So learning came to the rescue <laughs> to, to solve this task. So in this particular work, we focused on two tasks in robot mobile navigation. Uh, one was goal condition policies, and the second one was path following in real unstructured environments. And we selected these two because these two tasks were good building blocks that were A, unsolved at the time, and B, if solved, it can be used as a building box for the larger navigation system. Cool. Okay. So, I mean, I remember hand designing reward shaping uh, for a certain task, and I, I kept wishing that I could somehow learn what these what these coefficients could be, but I just assumed that it was just, that was impossible. It would be too expensive. And that was true for me because I just had a desktop GPU and a small budget. But I guess uh, I guess you don't have those constraints for some of your projects. That probably helps a lot. Yeah, it helps. Yes. <laughs> so let's move on to the next paper, Evolving mm -hmm. Rewards to Automate Reinforcement Learning. That was uh, first author yourself. Uh, so can you give us an idea of, uh, of what this paper is about? Sure. So after having the reward learning work on the robot navigation task and other robot tasks as well, for other actual robots, we wanted to know how really general this technique was. So in this paper, we applied the method across different benchmarking tasks, reinforcement learning algorithms, and different types of objective. And we learned some surprising things. We learned that intrinsic reward is tightly coupled with the reinforcement learning algorithm. So if we're using soft actor critic, we end up with a one reward. And if we're using PPO, we end up with a different reward uh, for the same objective on the same uh, task. So in retrospect, that, that was very surprising. But in retrospect, that makes sense because the reward serves as a guiding heuristic for the learning. So the loss and the reward are very closely, tightly coupled. If I understand correctly, we, we end up having to try a lot of different um, variations on these proxy rewards to see how they work out. Do you think that we could ever, um, you know, a time will ever come when we can kind of compute these somehow or estimate them without a lot of, uh, without so much trial and error? Or is that just kind of a hopeless thing? So it's not completely, it is to some extent trial and error, but it is learning. And the, the methods we're using in this case for learning are either uh, Gaussian bandits or cross-entropy methods. And it is somewhat uh, sample efficient, more than just brute force. That said, the there is a lot that we can do to make this learning more practical. Uh, one obvious thing is that in 
this particular work, the agents in the training population do not communicate and don't share experience with each other. So moving in moving this in the offline setting where we have population of agents that shares a data set that was pre-collected mm. would improve the yeah the computational complexity or the time that it takes to train tremendously because we don't need to run the simulator in the loop, just do the training in the process. Uh, the second way to go about that is that we're doing this exercise for a single task at a time, and that's highly inefficient. Uh, <clears throat> imagine being able to learn intrinsic rewards over familiar related tasks at the same time, just like we do. Right? We, we, we learn a bunch of tasks at the same time and intrinsic rewards along with it, which is basically internal feedback on how well we're going proceeding with a task. So learning good internal mechanism is a promising method. I think it's here to stay. I would love to see more methods that make it better and more scalable. And there are a number of ways to go about that. Cool. Okay. So let's move on to evolving reinforcement learning algorithms. That was by Co-Rays et al. in, uh, in 2021. Can you uh, give us a brief uh, overview of this of this one? Sure. So in this uh, paper, we asked a question or, or made an observation that learning loss functions nowadays, there's lots of new RL algorithms coming out every day, and this seems like tweaking the loss function is thing to do. <laughs> and we observed that loss function is really nothing more than a computational graph over certain uh, parameters of the uh, policies or, or the state action, observed state, and, and so on. So the question was, well, can we learn a new algorithm, loss function, that is trained on small set cheap environments and then be generalized and applied just like any other loss function that we know and love in unseen environments and so on. So that, that was the gist of the paper, and we are able to find several losses and, and so on that actually we're training in very simple environments such as the inverted uh, pendulum and the uh, lunar lander and a couple of simple mazes and actually outperforms some of the Atari games, actually all of the Atari games that we tested on. That's amazing. And I see this paper site's auto ml0 and shares two co-authors that's real and lee with that paper and i guess it uses a, a similar representation though i think the, the the present paper is searching through graphs where as auto ml0 seemed to be searching through linear sequences of instructions if i understood that correctly but in both cases i'm imagining some researcher had to pour over uh, you know all the things that the algorithms discover or the discovered algorithms and kind of figure out how to explain what it's doing, which kind of seems like reverse engineering an alien artifact. Can you talk about this uh, reversing process? How, how did that go uh, in this paper? Yep, you're right. And that's exactly what it is. And I personally find it very exciting. <laughs> the, but it does that to some extent, and it's not that bad and not that different from how we normally al analyze algorithms. The, the difference is that when we design the algorithm, we kind of have the design that we have in mind, <laughs> so we don't need to necessarily backward explain. But the process is 
is what makes it exciting. We learned something new that we didn't know about the algorithms. Uh, we did see the same, some very creative loss functions. Uh, one example is a loss function that consists of two max functions, which effectively creates a small decision tree in the state space and using a different loss function in each partition that it creates. I personally would never thought of constructing a loss function that, that way, but it kind of makes sense. Mm. The, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a surprisingly challenging to do the backward analysis, but we're using the same mathematical tools that we know. And that this is the process where we're already used to when we're explaining the deficiency of the existing algorithms. So, so do you consider that that type of, of uh, activity and approach under the umbrella of explainable AI? It seems a little bit different, but it's a little bit similar. Or how do you categorize that that type of approach? I didn't think of it that way, but now that you put it that way, it's a, it's a really good way to put it. Uh, it is always very helpful when two fields can be connected and benefit from each other tools. And in this case, AI produces math formulas, so all the tools from calculus and analysis that we know and love and, and use on every day to day basis, we can still use that tool set for analysis of, of these algorithms. The, and that's, that's exciting. And it's also easy for, for the deployment because it's, again, it's the same interface. So we can just, in this, in the case of these algorithms that we found, it's literally one line change over the QNs. Mm -hmm. So do you see this kind of, uh, data mining and interpreting the output of an AI algorithm as like a growing area in AI, or is this, or do you think it's this kind of uh, an exotic niche will it stay as an exotic niche? I think the interpretation is very important. It's very understudied and will need to grow more important as we start applying AI systems in the real world and getting them into the hands of the users. And the reason, there are two reasons why they're important. First, it builds the trust with the end users. Uh, knowing what to expect goes a long way towards accepting the technology. And for example, according to a Pew study uh, from 2017, 56% of Americans would not want to ride in a self-driving car because they don't trust the technology and they're not willing to give up the control to a machine in a life or death situation. Mm. And the similar results hold for surgical robots as well. So the, the, the burden is on us, technology development and researchers, to work, uh, to, to learn and, and develop the methods to earn the trust of the users. The second, these techniques bring really new insights. Uh, this is the first time that we have thousands of the reinforcement learning algorithms and their performance. And there are some surprising observations. For example, there are only uh, less than dozen different performance values which means that a lot of algorithms, even though their loss functions look very differently, in practice, they perform the same. That's very kind of <laughs> curious and peculiar. And I don't think we have a very good explanation to know why, but that's the observation. I'd love to see kind of community try to explain that. Like people are running, like as you mentioned earlier, people are coming out with new RL algorithms every day. Um, how long do you think before, you know, a big chunk of these are going to be produced uh, in an automated way, uh, something similar to this? I think that should be a good focus because 
all of our energy, mental energy is limited. So automating the pieces that, that can be automated, focusing our energy on the design of the elements and interpretation and so on is, I guess, better use of our time. So I'm hoping that these techniques, that we find a way to make them more broadly available. And that means both computationally and sharing the results and sharing the data sets and all, all the nine yards that we need to go about, but kind of move the field in that direction. I mean, it seems like it would be a, quite a challenge to to find a sweet spot when you're designing this type of search space. Mm-hmm. Like you could imagine designing the space to be easier to cover and smaller, but less expressive. And then you don't find certain types of algorithms or, or maybe it's more expressive and then it's massive, massive, and then it's harder to interpret mm-hmm. and it's hard, hard to actually discover those, those uh, good algorithms in the, that large space. So mm-hmm. is it, do, you, is it, do you see it that way or how do you think about uh, designing the, the types of search spaces that you need for this and, and does it involve a lot of trial and error or how does that process go? So in, in general, this is my personal research approach, I think it goes both for designing simulators and designing these spaces is that we should aim to find the smallest or the simplest space that does the job. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to start small and expand. It starts with, with an ambitious end goal but start small and ex- get some results and expand. Uh, the smaller search space allows for faster iterations, and that kind of helps kind of improve that process. But it does require lots of trial and error. The And hopefully, I think one thing that we need to do in the future by kind of having repeated that experiments across number of applications is to understand their better trade-offs of different search elements and then go move towards having the best practice guidelines. The, but for now, in this early state, we're still developing our own intuition over what works and what doesn't work. Cool. Okay, so let's move on to adversarial environment generation for learning to navigate the web. Mm-hmm. That was by Gur et al. with uh, with yourself as a co-author. And, uh, and let me just say, you know, looking over this paper, I, some days I definitely feel like some websites are generated by an adversarial AI and I feel like I have about an 80% success rate, you know, trying to use them. And, and I feel like I could use some agents to help me so I can, I can relate right away. But uh, could you, uh, could you give us the general, the actual idea of this, of this paper? Yeah. Yeah. The, I'm very excited about this direction. The, the idea is simple. So consider things we do online, purchase an airline ticket on a commercial airline, change password, log in, to a number of different websites, order food, and so on. We generally have no major problems adapting to a new task. For example, you now want to purchase a ticket on a new airline, or, hey, let's go buy movie tickets. Uh, Or oftentimes don't have issues dealing with uh, website redesigns. So why is that? Can AI and reinforcement learning do that? And why is it reasonable to expect to generalize to say movie tickets and not spaghetti making, right? (laughs) So these are some fundamental questions here. So underneath all of these tasks is a combination of simple manipulation skills, like enter the correct information in a text field or select a date and so on. And navigation, which basically tell you let's move to the next room by hitting next button or a submit button, button, not get lost in a way <laughs> by subscribing to a newsletter or, or so on. The 
in this kind of space is what we refer to as compositional tasks. Those are the tasks that consist of a set of basic manipulation skills that are connected together into a dependency graph where you kind of need to complete number of these manipulation tasks before you can, can proceed to the next phase and so on. And we need to learn to navigate by completing those uh, manipulation tasks. So at this point, we can start talking about the family of related tasks and the reason why it makes sense to be able to generalize between, say, movie tickets and passwords and not the cooking spaghetti. <laughs> the, so in, in, this, in the most recent work, we propose actually a formal framework for doing this through PetriNets. And just as a sneak peek, because that paper is not out yet, uh, the space of learnable tasks is huge. So with just 45 skills, like these basic skills, that creates a task space of 10 to the power of 24 different tasks that are solvable with this skill set. And if we kind of do 3,500 skill set, that creates a task space of 10 to the power of 31. That's huge. <laughs> So in this line of work, we aim to train a single reinforcement learning agent that can complete all of these compositional tasks without additional training. And I'm very excited about this line of work because it would allow us to both have formal framework for reasoning what is learnable and what's not learnable, and also enable us to create agents that qualitatively learn more difficult tasks that are seated only with few basic behaviors. Cool. Okay. And then as a note to listeners here, we featured a uh, co-author of this paper, Natasha Jakes, on our very first episode of Talk RL. Mm -hmm. And I see that this work uh, also cites and builds upon paired from the paper Emergent Complexity and Zero Shot Transfer via Unsupervised Environment Design. That was by Michael Dennis et al. Also with uh, Jakes as a co-author. And we were lucky enough to have uh, Michael Dennis on the show uh, not too long ago to talk about paired. That was back in January. So before we get into this, can you remind us uh, of the basic idea of, of paired? Sure. And by the way, both Natasha and I, Michael, are just amazing. The, so the basic idea behind bear, paired is that for many tasks, it helps to guide the agent with the curriculum. And hand designing curriculums is difficult. So the idea is to pose the curriculum learning as a multi-agent game where we have one agent adversary that creates difficult challenges and then agent that is learning how to solve these challenges. The, the adversary is creating the most difficult environment he can, and then the agent does the best he can. Now, to be able to provide the adversary with a learning signal for itself, the regret, which measures in lay terms the learning potential of the agent, the paper proposes adding an additional agent and estimate the regret as a difference in performance of the two that are training. So that way the adversary can make things more difficult when it observes that there is a lot more for the agent to learn and keep experimenting with different environment setups if the agents are performing the same observing zero regret. So that was the gist of the paired paper. So super elegant uh, formulation here. And uh, I, I love that paper. As soon as I saw the poster, I'm like, this is beautiful. So, but here we're going further. You introduced flexible paired and uh, B paired. Can you, can you explain flexible paired and, and B, B paired? Yeah, I, I, I love paired paper. I was not author on it, but very elegant idea. And, and I love it. The, so yeah, there, there was the interesting uh, journey with kind of extensions. Um, 
remember that we're interested in compositional tasks. So the topology of this task is like a series of the task in the that the original paper paired paper did. Uh, there are kind of a set of connected rooms where kind of agents need to complete smaller challenges along the way. And because the tasks are orders of magnitude harder, regret is, is estimated in uh, paired paper is often zero. And that doesn't kind of lead us everywhere. Uh, second, upon the further analysis, and this was not obvious <laughs> kind of for, for, from the get-go, is we realized that in the original paired paper, paper, the adversary is learning to create solvable environments. And we don't have problem in this context because all of, all of our tasks are solvable by design. Mm. They're, they are very complicated, but they are solvable. And in pay, original paired paper, many of these environments are not solvable and the adversary is learning to create feasible environments. So the, to solve the compositional task with this learn curriculum, we created an adversary LSTM that creates up to 10 page long websites and places up to 100 elements on each page that the agent need to do. And we also equipped the LSTM uh, with an explicit control of the design budget. And basically, LSTM decides how many design elements and pages are appropriate to create an uh, output given the observed competency of the agent that it's training. And uh, that that's what we call the budgeted pair or be paired. Ah. And yeah. So that 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 to that we then added the additional to do that, we added the additional loss component, which encourages the LSTM to increase the difficulty when the agents are doing well and decrease it when they're struggling. And then the regret loss from the original pair, which kind of modified, is used for fine control over selection of the individual skills and design elements to place on the page. And then the second part is that we made the regret estimation a bit more generic by extending it to a population of agents. In the original pair, it's just two agents and one is fixed. In our case, uh, we compute uh, regret as difference between the best performing agent in a group and the average. Mm-hmm. And that train that, that makes training a bit more stable. So there's no there's no longer an antagonist and protagonist. Right. Is that the idea? That's that's uh-huh. the idea. Yeah. So with these two modifications, we're able to train those generic navigation policies uh, for basically any website and so on. And we observe that the complexity of the learn tasks uh, steadily increases with the prolonged training. Okay. If we look back at the different methods we talked about today. The common theme is they, they seem to involve a fair bit of compute, especially with this outer meta-learning or evolutionary loops uh, around mm-hmm. RL, RL itself being relatively expensive uh, in compute. So I wonder how you think about the cost-benefit uh, when using, like whether using that compute is worthwhile in, in, in each case. Like, is it obvious where the line is of worthwhile and, and not, or does it usually involve experiments to decide where the line is? How do you think about that? It, it goes both ways. So in my mind, the, it, the, the investing in compute is a design choice. And I tend to ask two questions. First, is the task tedious and repetitive? Are we learning, have we spent months, if not years, tuning the rewards <laughs> in various problems across different applications and whatnot? 
And then the second question is, is the solution, would the solution be reusable? Does it make sense to invest in compute when the result of that computation is something that can be used over and over again? For example, uh, when we learn the policies with the learned rewards, we can use these policies for uh, higher order planning and multi-agent systems for a rendezvous task, but then each agent kind of controls itself and they're doing the joint planning and so on. So that, that, that makes sense to do. So if the answer to any of these two questions is no, then the investment in the compute is probably not justified. So it makes sense always to, to, to start small and see if there is promising kind of reusability or, or, or the save engineering saving time and then invest more into computation. And do you do you start with like a, a fixed compute budget in mind and see what you can do with that, or do you sometimes fix a problem and then try to estimate the budget you need, compute budget you need? How does that work? How do you think about that? Yeah, so it's more that we start with a fixed budget because even in Google the budget is fixed and we actually have <laughs> fixed a lot allowance of the budget to begin with. Uh, and go from from there. The we need to share, yeah. So in Google, we need to share the data center in the crunch time. We can ask for maybe more, but the compute might not be available, and mm -hmm. we end up slowing ourselves down and so on. So start with the fixed budget <laughs> that we have, and go from there. But if we've done something similar before, we have good sense of the need uh, for the computational budget, and have a good guesstimate what is needed, then we can ask for more and then kind of carve out the problem. So for example, now with the loss functions, our first dip in that space was on the value-based functions that proved to work. The It makes sense to kind of rethink and what might be better or, or larger computational budget in that space, given that we're producing the database of the algorithms and so on that the community can use and build upon. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to be clear, how do you like to define meta RL? It seems like it could mean a few different things. Sure. So in community, meta RL comes in basically two main flavors. One is learning to learn. And the other method is methods like MIMO, uh, meta learning, uh, and so on, in which case, we learn a generic policy and then we learn specialization policies based on the additional data and so on. My research focus is more geared towards generic learning methods and defining meta RL as a trainer or, or a learning agent that aids learning of the RL agents. So it's a multi-agent system and the meta trainer is training the RL agent. Now, for the meta trainer, it can be either evolution, it can be reinforcement learning, it can be supervised, and whatnot in the methods there differ, but the, the, the paradigm is that we have RL agent under training and the meta trainer that aids the training of, of the meta trainer, of the RL agent. Okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying. Those two, two flavors we're getting very uh, mixed up, I think, in my mind. And so I was thinking, well, this is not like mammal, but that's our MetaRL. Yeah. So so, this, so, so the other term that, that I tend to use is learning to learn. And I think that's a little bit more clear because it is focused on 
Oh, oh, the particular flavor mm-hmm. of the meta learning. I mean, you could describe mammal that way too, right? Like it's learning to learn very quickly how to sure. compensate for different sure. surface or something. So sure. it gets more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, th- okay. So we'll go with that. So, so, um, so following, following that, um, uh, it seems like we're moving up the stack in a sense. Like, you know, if we look back a few dec- decades ago, Deep RL itself, we would say, well, it's, it's the compute is too, too, too much for deep RL. It would have been prohibitive. And maybe a few years ago, we would say meta RL would have been prohibitive in terms of compute. And, uh, but do you see a for time, uh, foresee like some time in the future where we could go even up another layer and, and, and talk about meta, meta RL being, uh, being feasible, for example, maybe to explore various types of search spaces, uh, designs, like we mentioned earlier, uh, could this process continue on and on, or do you see that there would be diminishing returns and we would, we would just stop at some point? I, I love this question. I'm enthusiastically nodding here on on, on the other side. Awesome. <laughs> uh, in fact, this is something that I would be very curious to know how to do. Uh, interesting questions to ask here would be when and how do we accept and learn new skills? Under what circumstances do we forget ones? Some other interesting aspects would be integration of different various methods and learning more about interdependency between them. So for example, imagine learning rewards, neural network architecture search and loss function and the curriculum in at the same time in the same swoop. The, that, that would be cool. I, I don't think that we are close to being do, doing that, but we're kind of just dipping our toes in this space and being able to kind of focus more on the learning the dependencies in this complex learning system, the how, what is the role of the neural network architecture, right? What is the, the role of the reward and so on and how they interplay? I think that'd be very exciting. You describe your work, um, and we were talking before the episode, uh, in terms of learning to learning to learn, learning mm-hmm. to teach, and uh, and I don't know if you use the phrase, but learning to reward. Yeah. And and uh, I guess when you put them that way, they sound very relatable and almost like like relatable to humans. Is that how you think about them? Yeah. Yeah. The they they do come as a co- part of the cognitive process, and I, and I did mention that I'm broadly interested in learning something about cognitive science in the in the process and drawing the exploration uh, to it. So each one of these maps to a different cognitive process. Uh, we have some recent work on the joint attention, and we showed it was also with Natasha Jakes. The we showed that in the multi-agent systems, that when they're sharing attention layers and we reward sharing the shared attention, we actually improve performance on the cooperative multi-agent tasks, which is very cool result and kind of very interesting because we know from cognitive science and psychology and biology that that happens in in, in humans and not in other, say, primates and whatnot. Hmm. Okay. And then, so how do you think about the, uh, how do you think about how this uh, meta-RL relates to, say, humans or animals? Like, do you think is there some uh, learning to learn that happens in uh, with with humans or animals? Mm-hmm. So that's a very good question. I'm 
really glad you asked it. So th there is a number of cognitive processes, and I've focused on the evolution, reinforcement, self-supervision, and curriculum mostly. So in biological systems, the evolution determines the fixed hyperparameters of the system that is tailored precisely for the task and environments that the system will be performing. So our height and uh, all the are tailored to the environment that we're going to operate mm -hmm. and, and so on. The And that seems to translate directly to AI in terms of the hyperparameters for the reinforcement learning, uh, neural network architecture search is a hyperparameter, how many layers, and, and the rewards as well. So next, biological systems learn skills very basic ones at first, and then we do that through interaction with the world, bunking on the objects, right? <laughs> the, the testing the, the, the gravity and so on. And this loosely maps to the reinforcement and imitation learning. Mm -hmm. So next is the biological system practices. We practice these skills and we observe not only our behaviors, but those of others. And we learn the causality and learn to predict the future, what future might hold. The, we call this intuition, <laughs> but it's really prior experience compressed into a predictive model that's trained with the self-supervision. For example, having a wall ahead of you, you're not going to go straight ahead, even though you haven't experienced that particular wall because you've seen examples and experienced examples before. We've kind of had some series of papers in the self-supervision where we can learn pretty much anything that, that we're curious about, about both our policies without knowing actually policies and our teammates as well. So then that predictive model can be higher or lower quality, but it's never perfect, just like our skills are never perfect. Uh, but we can still use them in combination with the basic skills that we have to imagine scenarios and we can start learning more complex skills that require more planning, such as navigation over long distances or combinatorial and compositional tasks like we did in web navigation and, and manipulation. So in biological systems, the learning process and things that we learn changes over time through the curriculum. And we saw the evidence also through paired-like papers in the literature, both my work and kind of external literature, uh, that the biologic-inspired ideas tend to transfer to some extent. So I think the future is going to be very interesting to see how hierarchical, model-based, and multi-agent RL come together to learn increasingly complex tasks. Uh, we treat them now as a separate subfield of the RL, mm -hmm. but they seem to be very highly related to each other, and we don't quite know how to put them together as a uh, single system. I mean, it seems like uh, evolution is doing our meta RL, right? It's it's mm -hmm. building uh, ability to uh, to learn somehow. Yeah. Is it is it? But is it purely evolution? Because I think I wonder if you could say. Um, I wonder if you could say that in our lifetime we're doing something like mammal because as we get more skills then it's it's easier for us to get in you know when we learn our, our fifth sport it's actually a lot sure. easier because we already have some in the similar that's, way as a mammal or something yeah that, that that's a very good point and this is not meant to be completely exhaustive list it was 
merely the list of the work I personally worked on. The, there, there is a lot more there to be said. And one way to kind of think of it is at least kind of the taxonomy that I'm starting to observe is what are the fixed hyperparameters. So some things are fixed for life, more, more or less. And the life of the agent is, <laughs> is questionable. And the other things kind of change over time. The so curriculum based methods in the paired business where we're having kind of teacher and a student or adversary and whatnot are more learned leaned towards adaptation. And I think I would put mammal into that space as well. But how how to put these two together at the same time, I have no idea how to do. <laughs> That's what makes it an interesting field, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. So do you plan to uh, to continue focusing on, on these themes uh, going forward with your work? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's super exciting and very rich area to, to explore. The Yeah. And, and I mean, consider this being able to train the RL agents and making them work is very human intensive process right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that means the process of training as we talked about before, that process is training. We're kind of putting our cognitive cycles into that to make the, sequ- the sequential decisions to, to solve them. So if we offload that and solve the RL with RL or other learning methods, the, I mean, we, we can open ourselves to, to, to more opportunities. And ultimately, that automation will not only lead to better policies, but even more to deeper insights about how and why and why and when RL works. And it will free us from the burden of picking experiments and able to focus on kind of what matters most. So for the listeners, uh, Dr. Faust and I crossed paths at ICLR conference uh, in the GatherTown video chat. And I also attended your, your mentoring sessions on, uh, on research careers. So I can definitely recommend uh, your mentoring advice. And is mentoring a, a significant focus for you? Thanks so much, Robin. Uh, yeah, actually, mentorship is very important to me. And I, I find it personally gratifying. Uh, I've learned a lot from each mentoring relationship that I have. And I highly recommend anybody uh, to do it. The... And, and to quote my mentor, Maya Materich from USC, uh, no matter where you're in career you are, uh, you can always mentor someone. Even high school or students can mentor middle school students. So there's really no excuse. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so and then can you say anything about the uh, what you see as the ideal working relationship between a senior researcher and a junior researcher? Like, like for example, what should each uh, each contribute to the work? So any working relationship is a two-way process and comes from combining strengths and weaknesses of each party. In any successful relationship, one party is contributing something and learning something else, and goes same for the other party as well. So the so that that kind of goes same thing for the junior slash senior researcher in a field. There are complementary roles. And each party kind of has different role to, to fulfill. So from, from the perspective of the senior researcher, research career is filled with lots of ups and downs. <laughs> and it is really not for faint of heart. The both wins and losses are highly personal. personal, And 
when we're in the lows, when things are not working and we don't know what the next question is and when we're going to have a solution, uh, the loss periods can feel indefinite. So senior researcher brings experience and can kind of fill in several roles to that expect. First, the, the cyclical nature of the process, the senior researcher understands that and is able to aid with the emotional journey. And I really don't want to underestimate the emotional journey. We don't talk about that, but we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and bring the encouragement at the times of the lows. Again, to quote one of my prior professors, say research is lots of, feels lots like banging head on the wall. And after having enough experience, you know that eventually wall is going to give up. <laughs> 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 so that kind of gives a sense of confidence. So second role, the senior researcher has developed an intuition and taste for good problems. So he or she needs to steer the junior person towards asking the right question and kind of really equipping with kind of developing that taste in research. The And then the third senior researcher should be in a better position to judge the full potential of the research because I've seen several times that people get excited like okay it's been low <laughs> right it's tiring the, the the minimum things start to work it's like okay let's go publish it and so on it's like no maybe we should just kind of hang on a little bit more because there is a lot more that can be done in a short time uh, if we kind of dig this a bit deeper so and then uh, finally the senior researcher can help junior person with visibility and connections and reflecting their strengths to them. And again, with the strengths, it's very easy for us, for most of us, is we're trained to do that, to pick, to, to nitpick and find the deficiency. And we're very good at finding deficiency with mm-hmm. ourselves. And it's not obvious to us what our strengths are. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the senior people can help with that. The And then the junior researchers bring the creativity and more focused time on fewer projects than a senior, because senior people tend to be kind of spread thin the and have more details and depth on the particular technical areas. So keeping the senior researcher informed about the findings and the process, that's kind of the, 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 the giving back part that, that can form very productive partnership. That was super interesting. Okay. So besides what we've talked about uh, today, is there, are there other things going on in RL these days that, uh, that you find quite interesting? Lots of things. <laughs> so besides breaking the barrier of skill learning and generalization over these families of the tasks and the environments and treating RL as decision-making problem and solving it, I'm really excited about RL coming together as systems for doing social good. There is tremendous opportunity to use autonomous agents or all systems, call them however you want, to automate repetitive tasks that we do. So not that's not only just convenient and frees us, but also opens a huge opportunity with people with the accessibility needs or maybe elderly people that are not that comfortable with the technology who are unable to complete those tasks on their own. And that really makes a difference uh, for, for, for the people. So the key here will be that we think about RL agents and RL systems in the terms of the interfaces that are compatible with human users. So having vision and natural language uh, agents in, 
working with those inputs and so on is going to be very key important in addition to the interpretability and so on. So I and some other work I'm very excited about right now, like chip design from Anna and Azalia that came out uh, earlier this week and the balloon navigation from Mark Bellamar, seeing the RL work in these really snarly real world problems is super, super exciting. So in terms of the particular methods to get us there, as we mentioned, like this population-based RL, uh, social RL, uh, where we're kind of training uh, groups of the agents and agents are learning from agents that Natasha Jakes is spearheading and offline RL. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, as treating the learning as a social construct, the the offline RL methods similarly focus on learning from li limited interactions with the world, and this is has been one of the kind of key bottlenecks of the RL when it gets to kind of bringing it into the real world. So, lastly, I think very soon we'll need to look into the fairness and interpretability of decision making, and that's something that. <laughs> we we had the luxury of not doing so far the in, in the terms of the RL, but as we're moving towards really real world problems, it's going to be incredibly important. And then the second thing is develop theoretical foundations around generalization in the RL. Uh, the field is moving towards generalization across environments, tasks, and systems, and the good old market decision process or POM-MDP abstra abstraction is not very useful as it is. So developing new theoretical tools will be very exciting in this space. Wow. Okay. Can you can you say more about that? You were you were saying how the MDP and POMDP abstractions are limiting in some ways. So uh, what can you talk about how they how they're not useful or limiting and, and, and what alternatives could we have there? Sure. So POM MDP or let's say MDP tells you that your RL problem is state action, hidden dynamics, hidden reward that we can observe and gamma function, right? And yet, when we're solving any problem, the first things we ask is like, okay, what is the environment? What is the task? <laughs> what is the system we're going to run? And so on. None of this really exists in, in, in the POM MDP. Basically, what we're doing is, and this is like the very undiscovered area that we're just kind of empirically doing, is we're mapping the real world and the real problems into POM MDP, right? Second question about that is that POM MDP says, okay, here's your fixed state, here's your fixed action speed, and, and so on. What we really ask when we're talking about generalization is how this agent can solve n number of tasks in m number of environments, right? Which at this point then is a family of POM MDPs. Mm -hmm. It can be a chain in the compositional in the compositional. Uh, task formulation, it is a chain of MDPs, related chain, and so on. We don't have tools to do that. There is absolutely no theoretical tools or definition of the problem that can kind of aid us in that. So we end up in this very kind of highly empirical environment where we're defining environments and we're defining benchmarks and whatnot, but really the theory works on the POM MDP in the POM MDP setting without looking at the structure behind the environments and tasks and so on. Hmm. And, and by tasks, I mean, you don't just mean rewards, right? The rewards are what we're using to get the task done? Exactly. 
right? So when we, we talked about learning the rewards, your our task objectives, and if you can all read the the, the theory of of reinforcement learning, they'll tell you, I think in Barto's book, is that the reward should be your task objective, which means we should not be even talking about intrinsic rewards. Okay, fine. Now we do intrinsic rewards and we put that in POM MDP, but it, what it really is is that we're creating a proxy POM MDP for the one that we actually want to solve. Mm. Right, so, so <laughs> you see where that's going. So ideally, you would be able to more directly state what it is we need, and in a in a framework that has some theoretical basis to get us there. Is that, is that yeah. kind of what you're saying? Yes, I don't know how to do it, but I, I I think that we can and should do better. Sounds like some of your work is is maybe building the bridge there. If if the meta RL is taking us there, I am hoping that meta RL. I'm hoping that the uh, the compositional in the compositional ta- uh, paper positional task paper that it's, it's going to come out in archive soon. Uh, we put foundations of the compositional tasks through PetriNets, and that allows the actual, we can see the topology of the task. And we actually propose that from that, the task is a graph, uh, which is a PetriNet that can kind of control the state. And directly out of that graph, uh, we can infer the POM MDPs that are that we can use them for solving RL agents, and we can define the the family of the related graphs of the petri nets that dis- describe this space. So at least that kind of gives somewhat of the of the of the framework. It's just scratching the surface. I don't think that's necessarily the the, the right way to to think of it or so on. But it it is a way. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so is there anything else I should have I should have asked you about today, or anything that that you want to share with our listeners today? It is a very exciting time to be in reinforcement learning. I think reinforcement learning is really the cusp of breakthrough that requires a really holistic and multidisciplinary approach between research tools and frameworks and challenging applications really need to come together to drive the progress. And it will happen soon. It's kind of happening now. So I personally feel very honored and privileged to be part of this journey at this point of time and super grateful to all of my collaborators for kind of enjoying the ride and sharing the <laughs> sharing the journey fantastic and any any suggestions for for the talk RL show here the, the, this looks great and thank you so much for having me this has been great conversation it's been so great to have you dr alexandra faust thanks for your time and your insight and thanks for sharing with talk RL. thank you so much Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at talkrlpodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 